Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining me today. Uh, this is part number two on five areas that God expects us to be good stewards, right? And uh, before I get too deep into the message, I want to talk to you again on the subject of fasting. Now, fasting is hard. That's why most people don't do it. Now, anyone who says fasting is easy has never truly fasted. Or maybe they tried to fast something that they really didn't like or care about anyway. Now, I know this may sound heretical, but I'm not a big fan of sweet tea. I could take it or I could leave it. If I were to fast sweet tea, that would be no big sacrifice. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she loves Dr. Pepper and sweet tea. For her to give up sweet tea is as big a deal as me giving up sugary sweets. Probably shouldn't admit this either, but I'll knock somebody over for a blueberry muffin, an apple fritter, or a glazed donut. So when we fast, we give up something that we really love, something we really crave for, like Krispy Kreme donuts when the hot light is on. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Fasting is hard. However, as hard as it can be, often the greatest temptations that we face is not during the fast itself, but immediately following the fast. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that after Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now the greater temptation came after the fast. Oh, and I intentionally left off uh, verse number one of Matthew chapter four, because it said that Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you see, being tempted is not the problem. It is yielding to that sin or yielding to that temptation that becomes sin. Now, this may sound a little bit off, but hear me out. Did you know that temptation is actually part of God's plan for stewardship? It's part of his plan to make us stronger. It's part of his plan for us to bring him glory through the victory we have been given over temptation. Now, and I'm not talking about temptation that is within, that we give into. James deals with this when he says, when we are tempted, no one can say, God is tempting me. So God is not the agent of tempting us, but he will use temptation as part of his plan to make us stronger. God cannot be tempted by evil. God won't tempt us by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. But James says when we are tempted, it's because of the evil desires that is within us. Our evil desires lure us away and entice us. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown gives birth to death. So John Piper writes, my serious consideration of fasting as a spiritual discipline began as a result of visiting Dr. John Gon Kim in Seoul, Korea. He says to Dr. Kim, is it true that you spent 40 days fasting prior to an evangelistic crusade in 1980? Yes, he responded, it's true. Dr. Kim was the chairman of the crusade expected to bring one million people to a plaza in Seoul, Korea. Six months before the meeting, the police informed Dr. Kim 
that they were revoking their permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in a political turmoil, and Seoul was under martial law. The officers decided they could not take the risk of having so many people gathered in one place. So Dr. Kim and some of his associates went to a prayer mountain, and they spent 40 days before God in prayer, fasting for the crusade. Then they returned, and they made their way back to the police station. And as they went back to the police station, the officer met them and said, Oh, Dr. Kim, we have changed our mind. You can have your meeting. Now, what an amazing thing about churches in Korea versus churches in the United States. A lot of churches in the United States, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but it shows a different emphasis. A lot of churches in the United States, they'll, they'll build a worship center, and then they'll build a gymnasium like a family life center. But in Seoul, Korea, the first building they build is a building for prayer. You go by most churches on a Sunday morning, that's when they're full. Uh, you drive by most churches during the week at 5 a.m., uh, they're empty. Most people are at home sleeping or getting ready to go to work. But in Seoul, Korea, when you drive by a church, you will see that it is full. The parking lot is full 5 a.m., a Monday through Friday, because people gather around every morning at 5 a.m. to pray before they go to work. Seoul, Korea was changed in part because of fasting. Minds are changed when we fast. And I found that often the mind that has changed the most is mine. Can I share a secret with you? Sometimes I want to quit and try something else. Through the years, fasting has helped me to not quit. It's changed my perspective. You know, when we quit, oftentimes we have a perspective that is not exactly accurate. But because we are so discouraged, we cannot see past our own perspective, even though it is skewed. Sometimes we even see the fact that our judgment is a little bit off, but because we are so defeated and so run down and so discouraged, we quit. Fasting is a discipline that will teach you not to quit. It's a discipline that will help you to have your mind thinking like Christ. I don't think I know of a person who fasts on a regular basis who is a quitter. You see, fasting helps me to develop the habit in life of constantly pressing on, not quitting, refusing to quit until the task is finished. You know, I found lots of examples of people who fasted in the Bible. They all know, they all have these amazing tasks, and they all complete these tasks. They wanted to quit. They had reason to quit. But they refused. I mean, look at Moses. I mean, after going to Pharaoh a couple of times, I think I would say, well, forget this. He's not going to let God's people go no matter what happens. But he continued on because before confronting Pharaoh, he fasted. And then we have Samuel. Samuel fasted and God gave him direction as to who was going to be the next king. David, a man after God's own heart, fasted when he was under the judgment of God. Elijah He fasted and prayed that it wouldn't rain, and the rain stopped. Nehemiah fasted before he was given that enormous task of building the walls around Jerusalem. Oh yeah, and then there's Daniel. He fasted, as did Anna, and Jesus himself fasted in Matthew chapter 4. Paul spent some time fasting, and he was back in the desert, and he was fasting right after his conversion. You see, the elders of the church in Acts chapter 13 
they got together and they fasted. Now, I could go on and on about biblical characters who fasted, but fasting includes a time when a nation is healed. Oftentimes, nations will fast and God brings healing. Sometimes churches will pray and fast and God brings reconciliation. You see, fasting creates a very important discipline. It is the ability to finish, the ability to never quit. Fasting creates a very important discipline that I can keep on keeping on. Do you know why when most people quit, pastors included, most people quit after a great conflict is resolved or after a great project is completed? Jesus didn't give up after the completion of the fast. He had that conflict with Satan after he finished fasting, and he goes on with the task that was set before him. You see, when you look at overcoming temptation, we don't get stronger in overcoming temptation by giving into it. We get stronger in overcoming temptation by overcoming it. As we continue our study on the disciplines that God expects us to live, as we look at these disciplines, we covered the first two yesterday. Discipline number one was the discipline of worship and prayer. We learned that the more we pray, the less we'll panic. The more we worship, the less we will worry. There's something about worshiping God and casting your gifts before Him and casting your concerns before Him. You know, you'll feel more patient and less pressured when you worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All of your being. That's why the Lord said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And this is the first and the greatest commandment. The second area that we're to steward in our lives is the area of fellowship. Being intentional, being consistent in fellowshipping with God's people. You see, the enemy loves to separate us from the body of Christ. The word koinia, the Greek word for fellowship, means to have communion with, to share something in common. It's to have that common bond, and what we are sharing in common as believers is Christ. You see, to be completely technical, fellowship can only happen between two believers, because the commonality that we have is based upon the relationship that we have in Christ. And so we spent some time yesterday in the broadcast talking about Biblical fellowship is a heart of love, and it's a heart of accepting others, not necessarily approving of everybody else, but accepting them because of who they are. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1.6 that we're to accept the beloved. We are to accept them, not necessarily approve of everything they do. And then we learned yesterday that we are to have fellowship with a spirit of restoration, that if a brother is stumbling— We are to go to that brother, restore him in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also fall. And then we learned, fourthly, that fellowship involves bearing the burdens of others. That would be weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. So fellowship creates an inner unity among believers that expresses itself in an outward cooperation with Christ and with others within the church. Here is the third area that we've got to work on when it comes to the matter of stewardship, and that is discipleship. 
Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I want to make a statement here when it comes to this matter of discipleship. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So we as Gentile believers have been grafted into the vine. We are a branch that has been grafted in. Notice what Jesus says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think it's possible for us to be grafted in, but not remaining in Christ. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Don't write me off as a heretic. But I believe that we can be just grafted in and not living the way we should be living, not producing the way that we should be producing. We haven't left the body of Christ because technically we can't because the branch is being securely held by the vine. Even when it comes to matters of pruning, that's done by the gardener. That's not done by us. Where we can be engrafted but not bearing. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we could call this an unproductive or a non-fruit-bearing Christian. Now, some would say this person's not saved. I believe that it could be a time where a person is is backslidden. Uh, They're not really that productive because it's not their season to produce. There's a number of reasons that we can look at, but we are to remain in Christ. And if you do not remain in him, you're like that branch that is thrown away and withers. And he says, you just as well be cut off, but you're not cut off in the first part of that sentence. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So here's the discipline. The discipline is remaining in Christ, doing whatever he asks. God's words remaining in us. God's will being done in us. And that's why we get fruit, because we're remaining in Him. But you cannot remain without discipleship, without being disciplined. Somebody wrote this wonderful article that I just want to read it to you. And I'm not sure who the author is. I would give them credit for it if I knew. But it's simply called The Fellowship of the unashamed. And this is where the stewardship of discipleship comes in. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, and worldly talking, cheap giving and dwarf grows. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven and my road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, and prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till everybody knows, work until he stops me. And when he comes for me, his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been very clear. You see, discipleship 
is the process of putting Jesus first in everything so that you can learn his ways and you can obey his commands so that he can produce his fruit in you as you love others who are also followers of Christ. What we've talked so far about the stewardship of discipleship, the stewardship of fellowship, the stewardship of worship, the fourth area of our lives that we must be good stewards of is the stewardship of serving. Lord, keep us selfless as we serve or as we give back. Now, the reason this is so hard is because the number one battle we all face is selfishness. But Mark tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul says that he was going to preach not himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves being servants of Jesus Christ. John Gardner once said, when people are serving, life is no longer meaningless. Does your life ever feel meaningless? Do you ever catch yourself thinking, what's the point? A wise friend once shared with me, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. How often we serve expecting others to give us something in return, but genuine disciplined service is giving something voluntarily without expecting anything in return. A servant is a voluntary slave of Christ who lovingly and faithfully ministers to others. In his book, Prodigal God, best-selling author and pastor Timothy Keller offers the following story to illustrate self-centered giving. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot So he took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. Well, the king was touched and discerned the genuineness of this man's heart. So the gardener turned to the king and said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I, as king, own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely, as a gift, so that you can garden it at all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this conversation. And he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I gave the king something even better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and he said, Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect to you. But the king also discerned this man's heart, and he said, well, thank you. And he took the horse and merely dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, there's a major difference 
the difference of motivation. Why are you serving? You see, we serve the Lord out of a heart of gratitude, a genuine, sincere, humble heart of thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to me. Because you've been so good to me, I am not interested in serve me. I am interested in serving others. I will overcome through discipline the battle that I have to be selfish, and I will serve others, expecting nothing in return. Well, that's the fourth discipline, serving selflessly, giving back. There's one final area that we've got to have a matter of discipline in, and that is evangelism. You know, it takes discipline to constantly share your faith because you've got to put yourself in a position where you're constantly having interaction with people who don't know the Lord. One of the reasons that I have continued on to be a prison chaplain is not because of the money. It's not because I have the time to do it, really. The reason I do it is, in part, is I want to remain evangelistic. I want to be able to have a heart to share the gospel with people that don't know Christ. You know, as a pastor, I could spend uh, all of my days interacting with only believers, meeting with leaders of the church, meeting with the elders, meeting with the deacons, meeting with the servants of the church, fellowshipping with people in my small group, hanging out with other believers. I I could constantly do that, but I would lose that heart for those who are lost. Evangelism helps us to keep focused on the big command that God has given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says, look what God has done. He sent Christ to make peace between himself and us, and he has given us a work. He's given us a ministry. It is a ministry of making peace between himself and others. What that means is that that God who is in Christ, offering peace and forgiveness to the people of this world, now he's given us the work of sharing his message about peace. The very last sermon that I heard my dad preach was a sermon on our ministry. What does God want you to do? He wants you to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. That is the discipline of evangelism. Who is going to be in heaven because of you. I know that I can't get anybody to heaven, but I can be the conduit. I can be the mouthpiece to share the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before others so they may see your good works and may glorify your father who is in heaven. You know, I think about the rise of Christianity. The rise of Christianity took place because of the power of love and the power of sharing that love. Many historians believe that that central to the rise of Christianity was the simple fact that Christians generously loved one another and their neighbors. They point out in the ancient world, this was not a positive thing, but was considered a character defect. I mean, if you ran and were merciful to somebody, there must be something wrong with you. Because in their minds, justice demanded that people get what they deserved. And whatever happened to happen to them is what they thought would be appropriate. If you extended grace and mercy and love and kindness to people that don't deserve it, 
How is that helping them? Yet the early Christians, they understood the power of mercy. They valued mercy. Christian communities became places where people tended to live longer and healthier lives because they cared for the sick. They cared for the poverty-stricken. They reached out and helped to provide for the needs of others. And Christians extended love way beyond the boundaries of their family, way beyond just their congregation. They extended their love to their pagan neighbors. As you think about that, we have been given the same command to reach out to those who are suffering, to those who are broken. We live in a world that there are so many broken people, and so we should be that candle that is shining in the darkness. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, Do you not say, There are four more months, then comes the harvest? He says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Oh, practice these disciplines and you'll discover the abundant Christian life. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557 or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.